Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open as always. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, special guest host this week, Mr. Simon Quigley. Welcome in, sir. Hey, great, great to, to be, be here. here. Great to have you, sir. I appreciate you making the time. So I, I, I want to start here, uh, Simon. Uh, we'll head into the uh, feedback, and I'll, I'll have you do that with me. Then I'm going to ask you to switch one of your uh, one of your hats and put on a different one. Is we're going to talk a little bit about Kubuntu. Stick uh, stick around. We'll head into email and see what's in the inbox. Chris writes in and says, Noah and Steve, my blood is boiling. Broadband in the United States falls so far behind when, say, compared to Korea, Japan, or China, so many other countries. Our telecom providers have zero interest or motivation to upgrade infrastructure in areas where they are the incumbent. We see it time and time again. Companies like AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, their own infrastructure in a region with little note competition. And what we see is nothing but rising Rates, data caps, little to no infrastructure upgrades, and no place for the consumer to turn. I'm sorry, but you cannot yet compare 5G or satellite internet with broadband delivered via cable in terms of performance or cost competitiveness. At the end of the day, our politicians and their cronies, whom they've appointed all in their pockets in large corporations with lobbying organizations, irrespective of political affiliation, what's seen in scenarios in cities such as Chattanooga, Tennessee, deploys a community-based network that offers better service for less money than the local incumbent telecoms and the politicians in the state are going after them to shut down because they clearly the likes of Comcast, AT&T, Verizon are applying pressure to them. Today, today I live in Japan where we have the equivalent of $70 per month symmetrical gigabit internet. The fiber is itself provided by NTT Docomo, which is regulated to some degree in what they can charge. And I'm able to choose from a slew of ISPs to provide the IP transport over the public internet over NTT fiber. Good luck finding something comparable in the U.S. at that price point. I'm sorry, but a Jeep pie is wrong. Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, and any other private telco that's an incumbent in an area where there's no competition because they own the infrastructure needs to be regulated to some degree. Thanks for your time. Best regards, Chris. So here, here, here's what I would tell you. So I would tell you that First of all, I would use Ajit's own words to say that he didn't say that there shouldn't be regulation. He said the question was when to regulate. Um, if we think a, a bit about what the purpose of government is, right, the purpose of government to protect its people. So certainly I can relate to your point about if you have a consumer that's in a boat and they have bad service and there's nowhere to turn, that's a problem. But that's a different problem than trying to regulate what companies can do with their own infrastructure. I think there's, I think those are two separate problems. Some people would absolutely argue that you can't have any regulation because it opens up the possibility um, of the government putting the screws on. But I think the blind sight in that approach is it also opens up a possibility for the private business to screw over the individual. And we have, I've heard from a number of people that listen to this show that have been a part of these interviews, both in the backside, the front side. And I've heard things like they have agreements that will limit the speed of your internet. If you don't allow deep packet inspection, I've heard that well-known ISPs come in, they'll give the office free business internet. But then the understanding is that the entire apartment complex will only work exclusively with that ISP. I've heard that if you only have one ISP there, oftentimes the price is terrible and what you pay for is not great. So I, I don't deny, and I don't think Ajit Pai denies that those situations exist. I think he believes that there are other ways to accomplish those solutions. But certainly, I, and I, I asked him the question, I think there's legitimately enough interest in acknowledging that the internet has become something that 
we need in today's day and age to do the things that you would expect to do on a day-to-day basis, I think it's worth having a conversation as to what role, if any, there is to say, would we want to bury some infrastructure, public infrastructure, and then decide who wants to rent out and provide those those services? I think that's a discussion worth having. I appreciate you writing in. Our second email comes in from, I should ask, Simon, anything to add? No, not really. I think it's it's you're completely right in the points of, um, you know, if you have a lot of these big companies out there, they aren't um, sometimes they could not cater to the smaller individuals. They could not cater to that. But I mean, it, I think it's it's a function of the company just becoming a little bit too big. And, I, uh, you know, I completely agree. Um, the the answer to that is to to make some of this public, because in 2024, you need Internet. Mm. Yeah, it's the way that we, you know accomplish half, half of the things we do in life. Our second email comes in from John. John writes in and says, Hey, no one, Steve, in a few episodes where self-hosting email has become a topic, I too have an interest in self-hosting email. But the factors that stop me are the following. One, dealing with being blacklisted. That's a stress I just don't need in my life. Two, security. I am a Linux newbie, or maybe I'm intermediate, but securing an email server is not in my skill set. The third, redundancy. It's hard and expensive, and without redundancy, I have a fear that the emails are going to be dropped, they're going to be missed, and getting my family to rely on a self-hosted email would be a really hard compared to the stability of something like Gmail. So that being said, has AltaSpeed considered starting an email hosting cooperative? Each of the clients, administrated by AltaSpeed probably, would, or ask NOAA listeners, and anybody else interested could spin up cloud-based home email server, the cooperative aspect would be in redundant server for co-op participants. If and when their email server had issues or temporarily, you could, for example, when linking email to my own domain, Google provides multiple MX records, which implies that if the server goes down, there are multiple other servers that can handle the request. This is the redundancy aspect of self-hosting companies that two plus VMs with public IPs running an email service needing to sync data and users between them backups, that's scary. I just wonder if there's enough open source software that it would make it doable for a co-op to publish an Ansible script that could turn VM Linux machines from zero to email hosts. Then some documentation on registering the node as part of the co-op. The node would be the primary email host forever owns the VM Linux host, but could also serve as a backup node for any of those in the co-op holding an email co-op that's down. For example, if I had to support a network co-op to help with redundancy or security best practices, I followed, I'd be game to play the cloud VM costs to run the email hosting server and support the co-op. Just food for thought. So I'm definitely open to the idea. Here's here, here, If I was to go point by point with you, here's what I would tell you. One, dealing with blacklist sucks, no doubt about it. And can it cause up to a 24 or 48 hours where you can't get to certain people? Yep, sure can. However, you're not immune from that on other service providers. It's just that they're handling that for you or doing those requests for you or fixing that, those things for you without having you to get involved. But admittedly, once every few years, you're going to have to spend some time, fill out a form. Here's my email address. Here's who I'm at. Here's my domain. Here's my problem. Can you unblacklist me? Yeah, you'll have to do that. As far as the security thing. So security is a moving target, so there's never going to be a perfect answer to anything. That said, one Unless you're encrypting ahead of time and then inserting the encrypted body into the email and, and doing that, largely email isn't a secure mode of communication anyway. You're you're storing the messages in plain text, you're receiving them in main text, and you have no real control over what the other person's server at the other end does. We want to protect credentials, we want to protect authentication, and of course the infrastructure aspect of it, all of the various services, all of the zero days that come with those services, all the zero days that come with the operating system, I get it. I understand. You're, you're not wrong. At the same time, my answer to that is there are more and more services like Mail in a Box and like others that have been brought up that largely automate all of that for you. Now you talk about a potential Ansible playbook that would do that. We looked into that a little bit. Largely right now, the way that Mailbox functions is it's a bash script. And so there'd, there'd be some engineering involved to make that work. But what I really want to see actually is not is not just an Ansible playbook for mail in the box, although I think that would be helpful. The real answer here, I think, is for a project like Nextcloud to look over and say, we need an email backend. We need to have an ability to host email or give the user the ability to host email. And now that becomes mail in a box becomes a role or a thing that is set up with Nextcloud. 
That's if I was if I was dreaming, that's what I would dream as is the ideal solution. Then to address your redundancy or expensive aspect, you're not wrong because it costs a lot of money to increase uptime. However, even if you fob that last part of it off and go to a digital ocean or a Linode or an AWS or a whatever, you're not still not going to be guaranteed no downtime as we're going to learn later today as we talk about wise cameras, but you're not going to be the one responsible for fixing it. And so you get the redundancy of having high availability and those sorts of things but you've offloaded all of that to another provider. So that's an option for you as well. And I would still say you're in a better boat doing that than paying for just the email thing. But here's, I think, the point I want to drive home. I am not in the boat of go out and host your own email, okay? I've worked at organizations that had two full-time mail administrators, and there were days that they didn't have email. And so my logic tells me if that an organization with two full-time paid people couldn't keep email working for an organization that cost them a lot of money when it when it didn't work. I don't know that I necessarily want to take that on. So I start in that boat. But as I look over to some of the problems that I watch people have with these cloud providers, and as I look at the problems that are so easily resolved with the people that self-host, I have to at least ask the question, is it becoming more practical to host your own email? I don't know the answer to that. As I kind of step out, where I'm at today I'm in between the two boats. I'm mostly in the, I'll offload it to somebody else. But I've got one foot in the, and when that bites me in the neck, you know what's really helpful is to have this thing over here that can send emails or that I know I can use to test and receive. And so I'm dipping my toes into the water of self-hosting email. And I'll let you know how it goes. And maybe it'll go terribly. I don't know. Simon, would you ever host your own email? wouldn't um the the concerns you mentioned regarding security regarding compliance with everything that really makes me take a second look at this mm. it's that's if you look at i have a blog post from cisco that we'll link in the show notes um essentially the as of february 1st these email providers they don't uh, they raise the standards so i believe it's google yahoo and a couple of others they don't they they recognize that you have to have a minimum uh dmark standard on there and for, for somebody who just wants to spin up an email server to just have it up and running and working, I, again, there's, there is the benefit to security of we don't want, you know, we don't want unauthorized domains sending or unauthorized IPs sending on, on behalf of a domain. We want some, some sort of authentication there. Uh, but at the same time, you're making it really, really difficult for the smaller uh, people who want to, to host their email servers to be able to get that up and running. Did, so far as I understand it, I believe mail in the box sets DKM up, sets all the custom records up, does everything. I think if you hand it DNS, it will just do it all for you. If you host DNS elsewhere, then there's a little bit of work involved and you have to create the records yourself. But I think mail in the box will do all of those things and meet all those security requirements. I, I would agree, except the, the target is constantly moving. That's that's the issue here. Um, if if you have these security implementations actually being enforced now um, of course in five ten years you're looking at a similar thing as technology continues to evolve so i think it's it's going to be continuously an uphill battle there one 855 450 noah 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com our third email comes in from austin austin says hello noah and steve i've been listening to your show for a while now and i really enjoy it i have some questions related to protecting a free PBX server. Recently, I set free PBX droplet up on DigitalOcean, and now I'm needing some advice on how to properly secure it. I am finding lots of conflicting advice online. Some say that the built-in firewall in free PBX is all you need. Others say that allowing all traffic into the PBX server is asking for trouble. I have the firewall enabled in free PBX and failed to ban as running. That's all I need. Should I also have the DigitalOcean firewall as well as restrict the incoming ports to what is necessary? ever set up VPNs to secure the connection between the soft phone clients and the PBX server, especially if the PBX server is running in the cloud? I hope my questions make sense. I heard your recommendations for Vox Telus as a SIP trunk provider and really like them so far. Long live Linux and open source. Thanks, Austin. So he here's what I would tell you. I would uh, So first of all, I'll link to the Sangoma knowledge base, which will go over their questionnaire and their deployment suggestions and practices because you should really take their advice, not mine. That said, Five years ago or 10 years ago, if you would have asked me this question, I would have told you that the free PBX community, and at that time, Asterix now, I think, was the distro. It was absolutely not designed to run on the open internet. Not whatsoever. Not designed at all for that. Over time, 
new things have come onto the scene that allow that to be more of an option. So I think there is the possibility that you, that you could step out and, and put that onto the internet or put it onto a droplet. But again, I'm going to direct you back to their deployment guide. Here's what, here's the way that I would approach it. I wouldn't expose any more than you absolutely have to. So if you can, my personal free PBX server runs in my house, in my basement on a $99 super micro board from the pizza guy server on uh, Mr. Uh, Rackables on, or, yeah, is that it? Mr. Rackables, Unix surplus, something like that on eBay. And he sells these little $99 atom boards uh, that it's like a pizza box looking one U server. And I bought one of those for 99 bucks and I put a SSD in it and I installed Asterix now on it. Now free PPX and runs just fine. That's what runs all the phones in my house. And that way, all the phones that are in the house connect directly to the box. And then it's using the trunk to get out to the internet to bring phone calls in. But even if that were to fail, at least the intercoms in the house and those sorts of things still work. If you're running a business, you might flip that around. Then the concern becomes, well, no, 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 no. I want the trunk to be with the phone system at all times. Now, one way you can do that, you bring up Vox Telesis, they use 3CX. You could just host it with them. I think it's like 35 bucks a month. They'll give you a 3CX instance. It is absolutely designed to be available on the open internet. It includes the necessary uh, security protocols to ban IPs and do all of those things and gives you a nice web UI and then you're just paying for a service. I will tell you, I am getting emails from them talking about the new licensing structure and how there's going to be an increase in cost and or things change. You are not going to have that problem with open source PBX software, which is why the PBX software that sits in my house is still free PBX. Still use Vox Telesis as a, as a trunk provider. I think they're great for providing the SIP surface and they're open source at their heart. They use Linux top to bottom in their business, which I think is great, but I'm just, I'm not quite on the 3CX bandwagon. I like it for business stuff. I understand the business rationale for it. It just concerns me that I'm kind of a slave to, to the activation. Our fourth email comes in from Charlie. Charlie says, good day, everyone. What would be the best, most affordable budget for backing up one terabyte of data in 2024? And so he lists a couple of options, 50 pack of Blu-rays, one new terabyte, 3.5 inch drive, second refurbished SAS drive, or a one terabyte micro SD card. So I'm going to work backwards and tell you, don't store stuff on flash memory. If you don't plug it in, it will eventually lose its ability to retain data and you're going to lose data. So don't, that's not a good long-term data storage problem. Uh, practice used secondhand drives. If you're not actively drilling on them, you know, that is to say you're not actively writing and reading data. It's you're storing it and then throwing it in a box somewhere. Used drives can be okay. You're taking a risk with any drive you buy. It's probably a better practice to buy a brand new drive, burn it for a while to make sure there's no manufacturer defects, then store your data on it and then store it. But I've bought plenty of used drives. And here's something to consider. If you can buy two refurbished drives for the same price that you can buy one new drive, I would argue you're in a better spot because now your data is in two places. But ultimately what I would encourage you to do, follow the three, two, one rule, have three copies of your data, have it on two different mediums. So that is to say, maybe you have two of them on, or maybe you have one copy on a hard drive, one copy on the Blu-ray, and then you have a second copy on another hard drive because the one is at least one copy is offsite. Three copies of your data, two different mediums, one offsite copy. That's what I would do. Also, if you're not testing it, it's not good enough. You have a backup wish, not a backup plan. Scuba Steve writes in and says, after listening to your cloud streaming woes on last week's episode, I was shocked that you haven't have over-the-air TV set up already. I hardly ever watch traditional television anymore, but I keep an antenna for whatever major, major sporting event comes up. All you need is about a $30 indoor antenna, a $100 HD home run box, and Sparkle TV out for your shield. Combine those, you've got dozens of channels of live HD TV that you can access from anywhere in your home network. Do a little more configuring and you can have a working DVR. Like I said, I don't use it very often, but it's truly a set it and forget it system. And it's great to have when you need worked flawlessly for the Super Bowl last week. Thanks for the show that you and Steve provide the value that fills the gap that other podcasts do not keep up the good work. Scuba Steve. So you turned me on to something, man. So I checked out this HD home run. This is really cool. So it's a device that takes in a signal and it acts as a cable tuner and or TV tuner and then exposes that over an IPTV feed, which you can then use the app. He recommends a sparkle, but I've also learned that there's an HD home run add on for Cody. So the concept that I can go install a boosted amplified antenna in my home 
and just connect that to the network, and then that becomes available to every coding TV in my house. I'm all on board. And Simon, I understand you were holding out because you've been doing this for a while. Yeah, so I've had um, just a little bit of experience with the um, with with doing over the air TV, and it's it's interesting because when you join over the air TV or when you're watching over the air TV channels, um, they they're mostly um, local news channels or sports or something like that. Um, but you do have, um, you know, for example, the Super Bowl. And I know you were having issues uh, streaming it with with the, you know, Paramount Plus. You could have possibly tried a local channel with something like this. Um, it's, it is a great option. I've, I've played with it personally on my own, um, albeit it was a couple of years ago. It, it definitely works well. Um, you, you can have a smaller device, um, connect it, connect everything up, and it's, I don't seem to recall whether it was the encoding or the decoding that happened specifically on the device, but um, it, it's, there are a lot of options. And in this space, it's, it's interesting given that TVs usually support this natively. If you'd like to do something like use your computer, um, to to watch the Super Bowl, it is a great option. I like it because it's the standpoint that I can self-host a television channel. You know, as I bring it in via the actual over the air. That appeals to the ham radio person inside of me. I can put up an antenna and receive the signal I'm bringing in. in. I was not aware that the technology readily existed to easily convert that into network packets and then bring those packets into Cody TV. Cause I tell you what, that gets me all the convenience I was looking for with all of the self hosting aspects to it. From the Linux newswire newsroom. This is the week in review with JT for the week of February 18th, 2024. Here's the Linux and open source news. Greg KH has announced that the Linux kernel project has been accepted as a CNA as a CVE numbering authority for vulnerabilities found in Linux. Firefox 123 has been released. Auto CPU Frequency has released version 2.2. Miracle WM, a Wayland compositor based on Mir, has had its first development release. Louvre, a C++ library for building Wayland compositors, has announced version 1.2. Linux 6.9 will allow the RISC-V kernel builds with Clang link time optimizations. Asahi Linux is conformant to the OpenGL 4.6 and OpenGL ES 3.2 on Apple Silicon Macs. The Minister of Digital Transformation of Ukraine, Mikhailo Fedorov, has announced that the code of their e-government app, Daya, will soon be open-sourced. The Nginx kernel developer has quit the project in a CVE dispute and has started the free Nginx fork. In security news, a newly discovered Wi-Fi authentication bypass vulnerability has been found in WPA Supplicant and Intel's iNet wireless daemon software. WPA Supplicant, which provides support for WPA, WPA2, WPA3, is present in all Android devices and a majority of Linux devices, as well as Chromebook operating systems. The vulnerability identified in WPA Supplicant, tracked as CVE 2023-52160, can be exploited against users connecting to an enterprise Wi-Fi network. The flaw allows an attacker to trick a targeted user into connecting to a malicious Wi-Fi network set up to mimic a legitimate enterprise network. The attacker can then intercept the victim's traffic. Security researchers have uncovered a sophisticated malware campaign targeting Redis, a popular data store system. This campaign, dubbed Migo, employs novel tactics to compromise Redis servers along with the goal of mining cryptocurrency on Linux hosts. A reverse engineering of the firmware running on Avanti Pulse security appliances has revealed numerous weaknesses, once again underscoring the challenges of securing software supply chains. Eclipsum said that the base operating system used by the Utah-based software company for the device is CentOS 6.4. This device uses an 11-year-old operating system, which hasn't been supported since November of 2020. More than 1,000 ubiquity, routers, and homes and small businesses were infected with malware used by Russian-backed agents to coordinate them into a botnet for crime and spy operations, according to the Justice Department. The DOJ states it will notify affected customers to ask them to perform a factory reset, install the latest firmware, and change their default administrative password. And lastly, in open source AI news, Cohere for AI, the nonprofit research lab run by the artificial intelligence startup Cohere Inc., has introduced a massively multilingual open source artificial intelligence large language model called AYA that can operate in 101 different languages. Kubuntu has been on kind of a roller coaster ride. Joining me to discuss it, Simon Quigley, a Kubuntu member, and Rick Timmis, Kubuntu counselor and community manager. Welcome in, gentlemen. Hey, thanks for having us. 
Yeah, hello. Thank you. Delighted to be here. I, I appreciate you guys making the time. So, Simon, I wanted to start with you. Could you talk a little bit about what the status of Kubuntu was and what your involvement has been? What happened? Tell me the story. Sure. So this this goes back a couple of years. So we've had community interest in Kubuntu. We've had developers in the project. And over time, it's it's sort of you know, sloped downwards. It's we've had three developers and maybe two developers. And now we were left with the, with the last cycle with one developer. And I, I looked at all of this and I said, this isn't, this isn't really a, a good thing. Um, the, you look at Lubuntu and the amounts of, of KDE software we use just in, in terms of frameworks, even um, a lot of Lubuntu is built on Kubuntu. And so, so for me, this was very concerning as someone who, who did a lot of packaging training, et cetera, in Kubuntu, I wanted to go in and reinvigorate um, the community a little bit. So I contacted each of the existing Kubuntu council members. Um, we just had a chat just to say, hey, what what's going on? Um, how can we how can we as Lubuntu and how can we personally, how can we help? Um, is there something we can we can provide for you? Is there is there something we, you know, is there something you need? And um, through the help of Rick Timmis and other Kubuntu council members, their activity I mean, if you look at KDE events, they have a good amount of the uh, of resources. They have a strategic plan at this point. They have a, a good amount of, of items there. And if, you know, my involvement really has been just, you know, putting energy and passion behind that movement, really helping reinvigorate that community. So what would have happened if, if, if nobody had stepped up or nobody had said anything or nobody had done anything, what was the future of Kubuntu? So the future would have been, um, so for the, the first time, and I would say about 10 years, I don't consider this a bad thing, but all flavors are expected to requalify for the LTS. So we get to go to the technical board and say, this is why we should be supported for the next three years. Um, now for Ubuntu flavors, it's a little bit different than Ubuntu proper. Ubuntu flavors get three years of support. Ubuntu proper gets five years. Anyway, um, for Kubuntu, we we wanted to have this community there so that once we showed the technical board, um, you know, this is this is our application. This is something we'd like to prepare for. Um, that's we wanted to show them a strong community. And so, if if this didn't happen in Kubuntu, if if there wasn't a reinvigoration of effort there. Um, Kubuntu would have not filed for that long-term support requalification, in my estimation at least, and it, it would have gone to the point where Kubuntu would be supported for nine months. We would still have the one developer working on it, um, and things really wouldn't be moving forward. And it's it's kind of difficult to even see from, from the outside because a lot of people use Kubuntu. And when I say a lot, I really do mean a lot. It's, it's, we don't have exact numbers, of course, but there you walk around and see Kubuntu everywhere. And this was concerning to me as, you know, not only a, a Kubuntu member, but as, as a general flavor individual. And so I would say, yes, the, the Kubuntu council, the, the reason I think this effort is so great is because we're actually, we submitted our requalification for long-term support. We have, um, we have everything they need sent to them and they're currently reviewing it. So our, our sincere hope is that, or is that Kubuntu will be requalified for another um, for another three years? So, Rick, how did you become involved in this? How how did you get engaged, and what was of concern to you? Well, so I've been involved in Kubuntu for a long time, and I've been a counselor with the project for uh, at least three terms, so seven or eight years now, I suppose. Um, and so. Um, Things have been quiet in Kubuntu for uh, for some time, um, but um, as Simon rightly said, there you know um, some years ago before Simon was got more deeply involved with Lubuntu, um, he was deeply involved with Kubuntu, developing training and Motu skills, etc. Um, so so when he reached out, um, I felt really compelled to 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 engage there um, because obviously I have a standing relationship with Simon and I really wanted to help out um, and that really developed some some energy I think and the most important thing was being able to get the uh, council together to bring everybody together and we, we were able to achieve that and get a quorum of 
people to vote on a direction uh, for development funding etc and that's really what uh, what catalyzed the, the whole thing so, so I guess Simon I, I would I would look back to you and say so as this uh, now that you have the status to continue on and now that there's been some attention brought what does the future of Kubuntu look like now Kubuntu has been for a long time my daily driver I have taken this detour at the moment with Arch and I3, but I, you know, that's that's been kind of my safe haven. And I guess I feel like we've flown a little too close to the sun. What does it look like going forward? So going forward, there there is um, something that, that is slightly controversial, the fact that we are using Plasma 5 in this long-term support release instead of Plasma 6. And I'd like to address that head on because um, the, the, the rationale behind that is Kubuntu is... The user base of Kubuntu wants a stable, trustworthy release. And if we ship Plasma 6, um, you know, that the release date is barely before feature freeze, I would say. And it's to, to us, we would rather err on the side of caution and say these these users deserve something that we know is is tried, true, and tested. And it's not to say Plasma 6 is is bad in, 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 in any way. I've seen lots of good reports and I've, I've played with it just a little bit on my own end. And I don't really see many huge gla glaring issues. What I think this this means for Kubuntu, so we've hire, hired um, Scarlett Gately Moore and she's working on um, Kubuntu contracted right by the Kubuntu Council. And it's, it's a pretty unique situation. Um, they, with, with Kubuntu, um, the... The path forward is going to be to establish stability for this long-term support release. Once we hit the 2410 cycle, as soon as that opens, um, Lubuntu, Kubuntu, and Ubuntu Studio, all three flavors, we're switching um, over to the Qt 6 ports of things. And ideally, that would also be Wayland's. I know that's the default with, um, with KDE Plasma 6. Um, but the, the reason we're doing it right after the LTS, like immediately, is because we want to give it that two years worth of testing so people can download 2410, um, 2504, and 2510 and be able to test and, and play with Plasma 6 so we get some good user feedback on this is what we need to improve on for the next long-term support release. And I think looking at it from a two-year perspective really, really is beneficial as opposed to, to a shortened six-month cycle. Long-term, is Kubuntu looking at going to the new Flutter installer? No. So, so Kubuntu, and this was not, this was not my decision, honestly. Um, some people may think, well, Simon's involved in, in Kubuntu. No, that, that's not what it was. Um, for Kubuntu, I brought this idea to the council. There's, there's really two options at this point. Um, to use, or three, technically, because you could use Ubiquity, um, which is the classic Ubuntu installer everyone knows and loves. Um, but it's it's sort of over time it's sort of bit rotted a little bit. So so for example some partitioning items those aren't exactly stable at this point. Um, the the intent here is to have no flavors using Ubiquity left at the end of the cycle simply because there really isn't going to be a lot of traction behind maintaining Ubiquity if there's any bugs. Um, other than that, I would say that. Um, it's it's with the Ubuntu flavor installer, the the big hangup is just the amount of time it takes for onboarding. So I look at other flavors like Ubuntu Studio and the the couple of weeks it took them to get the Calamar or to get the Ubuntu flavor installer up to go. Um the to to me personally, and this is this is a personal opinion, I I, I really strongly believe Calamari's is does have you know, an advantage in terms of stability. And I would say that because if you look at the, the just the lifetime of these two installers, if you look at the, the amount of development effort and resources, um, the Ubuntu Flutter installer, the new one looks amazing. It looks great. And it does have quite a few useful features. But for Kubuntu, again, our our philosophy is, at least for this release, is keep it stable, keep it trustworthy. And if we aren't doing that, then you know that uh, here let me rephrase it's it's if if we do go with the ubuntu flutter installer we don't have that exact same guarantee rick anything that you wanted to add in the way of what the, the hope of the future of the project and, and what you all aim to accomplish going forward do you feel good about the future of kubuntu yes i do um so 
I mean, first of all, just talking about the Plasma 5, Plasma 6 thing, we have to keep in mind that we have some downstream dependencies as well. So we have hardware vendors like Kubuntu Focus, right, which produce you know, a whole suite of uh, hardware uh, that they ship with Kubuntu. Um, and so we need to make sure that that platform is stable. But we also know, as Simon rightly said, you know, if you look in uh, South America, for example, Kubuntu is used hugely across education in universities and other places. Um, and we also know that, um, that it's used um, certainly in like East Asia in business and enterprise. And so we have a vision to really start to support that. And part of our strategic goals going forward is to um, drive that uptake, work with our hardware vendor partners to drive uh, enterprise and business ready machines that are built off of Kubuntu and also to encourage and work with the developer communities and that's part of our strategic vision for 2024-25 so, so with this new energy that we have got and the LTS in place and of course we have a full time developer now um, with Scarlet now we're really well positioned so in answer to the question Noah yeah I'm very optimistic and very energised about what Kubuntu is doing right now for this site are you at liberty to talk about who those hardware partners are? Who makes a good laptop if you want to run Kubuntu and have a great experience out of the box? And what does the support infrastructure around that look like? Sure, absolutely. I can talk about that. So, um, so we partnered with a company about four years ago now. Well, let's say partnered, really. Um, it was a company in America, Mindshare Management. They approached us and wanted to build a developer-focused laptop, uh, so a competitor for the Apple Mac, but something that was really tuned towards uh, data science and developers and cloud platform and um, so we worked with them and launched the Kubuntu Focus M1 which was at the very end of 2019 um, they now have a portfolio of products the Kubuntu Focus M2 the IR14 the NX, I think it is, as well. Um, and you can find out about that. That's at kfocus.org. Um, then we also have... Um uh, we obviously work quite closely with KDE um, as well, um, and so you have two, um, laptops like the KDE Slimbook, etc. Um, and we're working at the moment with uh, like a European partner, trying to develop a European partner as well, but not in a position to announce the details of that right now, Noah. What does what does the support infrastructure look like if I? If I let's say I'm in Eastern Asia and I'm using this or maybe I'm running a school in South America and I run into a problem. Is that something I go to the hardware vendor for? Is that something I can buy a support plan to support the ongoing efforts of Kubuntu? What does that look like? Yeah, so um, you probably would need to speak in more depth to the guys at Kubuntu Focus for the detail on this, but um, but certainly it is possible to buy commercial grade support against the K-Focus, the Focus platform, if you're using them in enterprise. Um, and, you know, there are significant organizations that are using this. NASA have got a suite of them. The Jet Propulsion Lab use them. Um, in fact, the Mars helicopter was trained on them. Oh, kidding. Wow. That's cool. You're talking about the, the thing that, this is cool if you're not from, I'm kind of a space nut, but so... It, you're talking about the helicopter that it flew in and it's like the, the the belly opened up of the craft that was delivering it. And then this helicopter drops out of the belly and, and flew around. That's what they were doing to do the exploration. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and I think it's still operating today. Um, mm. it, you know. Yeah, that whole mission is, fan is, is, is spectacular because it's actually, it's a three-part mission, right? Part one was send all of the stuff over to Mars and there's like it's something like a it's something like a 11 minute delay from the time that the signal leaves it might even be more than that it might be like 20 minutes it's the time the the signal leaves earth till the time it can reach the equipment on Mars so there is no hand flying this thing down you they had to train all of this equipment to 
to well, and again, three stage mission, right? First was deliver all the equipment there. Second stage is they're collecting, I believe they're collecting coring samples, and then the helicopter aspect is to kind of look out to see what they would want to explore next or where they'd want to land next. And then the third stage is they've they're sending a, a thing to go collect or they shoot it back up into space, and I guess really four stage, they go and, and scoop it out of the out of space and bring it back. Just fantastic stuff. It's really cool. Austin uh, W. in the chat room says Mars helicopter is no longer flying, so maybe its mission has concluded. In either event, it's super exciting that Kubuntu is a part of that. It's uh, leading in a lot of ways, I think, in, in the Linux distro world as far as people that are looking for a predictable platform to sit down and work, and I'm glad to see that there's effort in the way of hardware vendors to get people professional support and into a platform. Uh, Rick Timmis, Simon Quigley, I appreciate both of your time. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll get you back on the program again soon. I would love to keep up with what's going on with Kubuntu. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure um, talking to you. Have a great day. Waze admitted this week that 13,000 users could have viewed strangers' camera feeds. This comes to us from the register.com. You can read the entire article linked at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Smart home security camera Slinger Wise is telling customers that its cybersecurity incident allowed thousands of users to see other people's camera feeds. Wise said that the 13th of the 13,000, only 1,504 users actually looked at the feeds of others. Willful or not, this represented about a 0.25% of all users. So here's, here's the deal. I would ask you the question, can you hold Wise accountable when they fall victim to something the technology was never truly designed to prevent? Okay. Here, here's why I say this isn't fall completely at the feet of Wise. First of all, users agreed to store their unencrypted video files on Wise's servers. And they did that because they wanted the convenience of the cloud to access the recordings from any device at any time just by logging into their account. You can't do that if you're also local client-side encrypting the footage. It requires a key store. It requires a separate encryption password. It requires you to manage the keys by hand. It requires something. And that wasn't there and it wasn't advertised and that wasn't the service that you were buying when you bought the Wise camera and installed it. There was no encryption. And frankly, up until five minutes ago, the 13,000 users that apparently never asked the question about security or encryption, and if they did ask the question, then they must have been satisfied with the answer because they kept the, the, the cameras installed. So I circle back to, can you really hold Wise accountable if they're falling victim to something that the technology wasn't designed to prevent. And I don't think anywhere in a cloud service camera provider's offering is there the suggestion that this is the most secure way to run a camera system. It's convenient. It's easy. That's why. So the company explained on Friday that the outage, which it attributed to their partner, AWS, took down Wise devices for several hours on Friday morning. Wise then said that they experienced the security issues when the cameras came back online. So imagine this. Every Wise camera, well, thousands of them, drop offline because they have a problem with their AWS instance. It all comes back on. What do you have? Denial of service. So the specific security concern was the result of an incident caused by a third-party caching client in which a library that was used was integrated in the system. Now, here's the deal. You'd have no way of knowing that they were using a third-party caching client library. You'd have no way to know that because you can't see the code. And so if you have no way to see the code and it's not hanging around on the internet for somebody to look at and raise the red flag and say, hey, this looks a little fishy, then we have no way to know that this is happening. Now, it gets worse. Because this is the second time something like this has happened. In five months, back in September, Wise users reported seeing feeds of cameras that they didn't own via Wise's online viewer. Wise claimed that for about 40 minutes, as many as 2,300 people could be logged in to the online viewer and been able to see up to 10 strangers' feeds. The company blamed that problem on a web caching issue and said that it employed numerous technical measures to prevent the problem from repeating, and including account provisions, updating company policies, and employee training, and hiring an external security firm for penetration testing, which apparently missed the fact that it was going to happen again five months later. 
So here's the takeaway. The takeaway is if the device is in your possession and it actually doesn't sync any data up to the cloud, then you're good. It's the modern day equivalent of a closed circuit TV camera. Okay. The second thing is the caveat, well, really the caveat is if the code isn't on the internet, then the collective community cannot bang on it. If the collective community cannot bang on it, there is no alarm to be had when something is fishy. It doesn't mean that you necessarily read the code, but it means that somebody else could read the code and raise their hand and say, hey, this looks a little weird. But that's not even a possibility with cloud services. And as Paul Moore demonstrated to us last year with, with UFI cameras, they're uploading unencrypted name tag thumbnail images to cloud servers so that they can accomplish the alerting on users' phones. And this is after or while telling com companies and customers, well, we don't have any clouds, we don't have any costs, nobody has access to your data but you. Well, it turns out that wasn't true. It turns out it was just somebody else's computer. So if the encrypted, if you're going to store it on somebody else's computer, make sure the recordings are encrypted. If the recordings had been encrypted, this wouldn't be a problem. If it's not client-side encrypted, the key is not only in your possession, then you should assume that at some point somebody can and somebody will get access to the data that you left unencrypted laying on somebody else's computer. What WISE did was only possible because of Linux automation, the scalability that comes with it. So there's another article, and I have this link for you in the show notes as well as podcast.asknoahshow.com from the register, talking about the demand for data center space in Europe. And it's outstripped supply last year. Why? Because hyperscalers are snapping up as much available capacity as they can get to. That is to say, you open a data center and all of a sudden all these companies go, we'll fill it with servers and then rent the servers back out to the service providers that want to sell all of these cloud services back to you. So the data center then is really just the result of the whole world going here, take and host our tech because we suck at it and we stubbed our toe trying to do it. And then I lost something and now I'm upset and I don't like it this way. So you take it and tell me what you want a month to deliver it back to me as a service. Well, that has resulted in the huge centralization of all of these services to which now probably half of everything you do runs either off of Azure or off of AWS or somewhere in between. But the problem that that creates is like the world has this, this swirling evolution, right? New companies start up, old companies die off, service offerings change. And again, they're all using largely the same infrastructure. And so we can, it's designed. Linux allows that Scalability, okay, today we need this stack, tomorrow we need that stack, today we need this storage, tomorrow we need that. That's possible. But in the last 90 days of my own personal life, I've had a cloud service tell me that the prices are going up. I've had a cloud service provider lock me out. And my favorite, a cloud service provider going out a month with an organization unable to send email to an entire domain. And that cloud service provider who is paid thousands of dollars every month to do a thing, and that thing is currently not working, they haven't really done anything about it. And all I'm left with is, well, I can ask for an update. So the ones that were open source, mainly to me in my element instance, yeah, it was kind of a pain, but at least there was something I could do to help myself. The ones that were proprietary, my excursion with the Super Bowl and this other cloud office provider, which I had no say in, but this organization is using, I'm helpless. I can't do anything. And that helpless feeling hits a nerve going all the way back to when I was a kid. And I remember Microsoft releasing Windows XP and the horror I felt when I figured out that you had to call this phone number or connect the computer to the internet in order to activate Windows XP. And I remember back then being scared and thinking that if my, if my laptop ever crashes and I have to reinstall Windows, it used to just be like I do that every few months to keep it running well. And now all of these new questions have surfaced, like, will I be near a phone? There's a scary little counter at the bottom, and I know I have some time to activate it, but I've never let the little scary counter run out, so what happens when that time expires? Am I just locked out of my computer? Can I use it? And it left this really nasty tasty taste in my mouth where I didn't feel like I could trust my own tech. And now, decades later, more than ever, I feel like I've accidentally stepped back into it. 
And so I would leave you with this. So if you care about your privacy, then you should own whatever it is you're feeding data into. Figure out what you can live with. And I suppose more importantly, figure out what you can't live without. And then whatever that thing is, find an open source home for that thing and host that thing yourself and move in. Or if you're not comfortable with that and you want the scalability and the backups and the high availability, outsource it to someplace. But own the sandbox that you've asked to place in somebody else's home. It, because at least then you're sitting in the passenger seat. You can sit in the driver's seat and host it entirely yourself. You can sit in the passenger seat and have an IT company or have a automation of sorts set the thing up. But at least then you're in the front seat and you can grab the wheel and you can see the oncoming collision coming down the road. But if you're sitting in the back seat and you got your head down and just, that's not my responsibility. I pay my 12 bucks a month until they stop. And then it's good enough until it isn't. And guess what? Those hyperscalers that just bought up all the space in Europe, there you can rent the same infrastructure that they have. And you can use the same technology that they use to sell you the services that they sell you. You can use the same automation tools, the same operating systems. That's all available to you. So I'll leave you with that. In the chat room, Sleuth, or, uh, Sleuth and Tiny bring up that you can use Jellyfin or Plex plugin as an HD home run as a DVR. So in, in that scenario... It's actually even cooler than just watching the thing live because you have the opportunity then to record the thing and then potentially play that back. Um, Simon, you had something that you wanted to announce. Yeah, so the the Kubuntu team is actually holding a graphic design contest. Um, so we will have this linked in the show note. Okay. And that's the... Having it in the show notes is the all the things to do the um, graphic design contest. You mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, the the Kubuntu um, Council actually published an, an announcement a couple of hours ago on this. Um, so essentially, you submit um, your wallpapers if you have wallpapers um, any items for graphic design um, you submit those via the details in the link um, the first prize winner actually gets a free kubuntu focus laptop um, worth up to a thousand dollars and the yeah the second and, and third place prizes actually gets i believe it's a 50 dollars gift card um, for the kubuntu focus shop and a certificate and trophies so there is quite a bit of incentive if you're if you're looking for a project to contribute to in that in that realm in that field if you're a graphic designer who loves um, open source this is your opportunity right here and what needs to be designed graphically what is the what what are we designing if you know if not that's cool too all right i'll take that as a we don't know or don't have that information readily available. Oh, a different window. Um, essentially, the there is um, the... Yeah, we'll skip it. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Hey, Simon, I appreciate you filling in for, for Steve. He couldn't be there this week. I appreciate you stepping in his shoes. Thanks, I appreciate you having me. All right. Music in our ears means we're out of time. Follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. I'm at Colonel Linux. Steve is at Linux Ovens and will likely be back next week. You can find all of the articles and resources available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.